mentioned that this I am saying of Jesus is the seventh and final one in John's gospel. Jesus had declared himself to be the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, and the way, the truth, and the life. And all of those, as I mentioned before, have their roots in the Old Testament. There is an assumed knowledge, and this one is no different. As Jesus says, I am the true vine, and he underlines for us our need to abide or remain or to live in him. Now, along with this being a a well-known Old Testament image of, of the Lord and his people, it also was, was an image that was familiar to uh, Jesus' original audience. They had seen grapevines. They, they understood what it was for a grapevine to be pruned. And grapevines require aggressive pruning. Uh, after the harvest, the, the vine dresser, or we might call him the gardener, would come and they would cut back those those branches that bore fruit, and they would do so to the point where to the untrained eye, we might look at it and think, they just destroyed the vine. There's no way that that vine is going to bear fruit next year. And yet what happens? The next year, there's a vast abundance of grapes because of that aggressive pruning. The aim in pruning is to remove whatever inhibits growth. And Jesus applies this principle of the Father's pruning of our spiritual lives. He applies this to us. We've all experienced this, whether we are aware of it or not, where the Father strips away things from us that are spiritually detrimental. Even if they're otherwise good things, they're pruned away from us. He takes that knife to our bad habits, to our bad attitudes. He often cuts away our prayerlessness by bringing things to us and giving us things to pray for. The Father applies that pruning knife to our priorities, to our values. He may even cut away relationships that would hinder our faith. As we think about this, this is important from the outset to understand, we should not look at this as punishment. It's not punishment. This is the gracious and merciful pruning knife of the Father. This pruning comes from the hand of a Father who loves us and wants what is best for us. Now again, this image did not come out of nowhere. We know that during this week, the disciples stayed in Bethany and they went into the temple courts each day where Jesus taught. They would pass through those temple courts one more time on their way to Gethsemane. And each day they would have seen over the gate that stood before the holy place of the temple, 
they would have seen an enormous golden vine. A vine that represented and symbolized Israel. We know that people made contributions of gold to expand that vine in the grape clusters. And so it would have been an image that was fresh in the mind of the disciples. The Jewish historian Josephus notes how magnificent this vine was. He, he records that, that some of the clusters of grapes were the size of the height of a man. I think it's hard for us to imagine this golden vine, there was so much gold in it, in fact, that when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, and they stripped all that gold, that it caused the price of gold to drop by 50% because it became so abundant just from that one vine. Israel considered themselves to be the vine of God. It was a familiar image. Psalm 80, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. Israel viewed themselves as God's beloved vine that was to bear much fruit. But Jesus is saying to us here that if we are going to belong to Him and belong to to his church and really bear fruit, he is saying you need to be connected to and rooted in me so much so that he says I am the true vine. You are merely the branches. I am the life of that vine. And what he is saying is that you need to be united to me by faith in order that your sins might be forgiven, and in order that the abundant life that he promised in chapter 10 might be ours. This picture gives us a, a wonderful image of what it means to be Christ's disciples. If we are in Jesus, the true vine then Jesus says, you will bear fruit. And then he goes on to say, if you are in me, then I call you my friends. And so let's think about this final I am saying of the Lord. And we, we see from the outset that this image, first of all, expresses the very essence of the Christian life. The very essence of the Christian life is being united by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what has been called union with Christ. And, and this, this is the predominant way that we are described in the New Testament. We might, we might think, you know, we call ourselves believers or Christians, but that's not the terminology that's used to describe a Christian in the New Testament. In the New Testament, a Christian is someone who is in 
Christ. If you read that first chapter of Ephesians, in a matter of about 11 verses, 10 times, 10 times we read phrases like in Christ or with Christ, in Him. This is what it means to be a Christian. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. I mentioned in our study of baptism that when Jesus gave the Great Commission, we are baptized into, into the name of the triune God. And that same terminology is used of us believing into Jesus. There are two Greek prepositions that, that can mean in or into, and it's the one that means into, that is used. Believe into Jesus. And that's remarkable because that kind of language was not found anywhere else in the ancient world. You believed in someone or you believe something about someone or you believed in their teaching but nowhere in the ancient world of Jesus time do we ever read of this unique phrase that someone believed into someone Jesus is saying that being my disciple it's not a matter of just believing things about me it's not just believing that I exist, but it's a mystical union with Christ himself. I cannot underline this enough. As one writer commenting on American Christianity he said, he said that this doctrine of union with Christ is the missing heart of the gospel in our day. The missing heart of the gospel. And this will probably ring bells for you. Talk to someone who says they are a Christian. How do they talk about their faith? For many, it's merely an identification with a certain religion. And I think if we listen closely, the way they talk about uh, their faith is really no different that we might hear uh, an unbelieving Jewish person talk about their faith, or that we might hear a Muslim talk about their faith. It's simply my preference, my identification. And when they talk about believing in Christ, and you press them on that, it's nothing more than them believing that Jesus existed. But our relationship with Jesus is much deeper than that. Charles Ross has a work, and it's on these upper room passages, and it's called his work is called The Inner Sanctuary. And he says that this image of the vine and the branches presupposes as lying at the very root of the Christian life a vital spiritual union to Christ. It is impossible to abide in Him unless we are first of all in Him, vitally united to Him by faith. 
the essence of the Christian life, it's not following a set of rules. It's not a moral code. It's not claiming a certain identification for yourself. It is being united to the person of Jesus Christ and having a living and active relationship with him where he is in you and you are in him by his Holy Spirit. And it is the missing heart of the gospel. Because this is a glorious truth. What does it mean to be united by Christ? It means that everything Jesus has is ours. Everything that he has earned is ours. Everywhere Jesus has a right to go, you have a right to go. You have a deed to heaven in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have a right and privilege to the throne of grace. That's what we, we read from in Hebrews 10. We can approach with boldness because we are united to Christ by faith. What he has earned is ours. His death is your death to sins. His resurrection is your resurrection. His deed to heaven is your deed to heaven. He is the vine. We are the branches. Our salvation depends on our intimate connection to Jesus Christ. And this vital union to Jesus Christ, it's not only the essence of what it means to be a Christian, but secondly, we see it's also the key to fruitfulness in the Christian life. Jesus is teaching us that the key to bearing fruit in the Christian life is to abide by faith in Christ the true vine. Jesus is the life-giving source of our growth in holiness, our sanctification. And this makes sense why Jesus first taught us a bit about the Holy Spirit. How, how, do, we, how do we abide in Christ if he's, if he's in heaven and we're here? Well, well, through the Holy Spirit. And if you look at your Bibles, the, the key word that Jesus uses is the word abide. Eleven times in chapter 14, he uses that word abide, and it simply means to remain somewhere, to, to dwell here, to, to live here. Listen to verses 4 and 5. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. And you'll notice throughout this section, Jesus weaves in these calls to keep his commandments, to obey him, to 
keep his word, to love one another. I wonder how, how do you hear this today when Jesus says, you need to abide in me. Are you thinking, I need to do better, I need to try harder. One writer point at, points out that this error, he says that bearing fruit in the Christian life is not a matter of self-effort, but it's a matter of clinging to Christ by faith. Remaining, living, abiding in Him. But how do we do that? How do we remain in Christ, live in Christ, abide in Him that we might grow and bear fruit? Well, there are a few things that come out of the passage here. And the first one is our need to submit ourselves to the vine dresser's pruning shears. This is one of the first ideas mentioned is that of pruning. Again, Charles Ross says this, Jesus is the true vine, the source of his people's spiritual life and fruitfulness, and his father is the husbandman, or the vine dresser, that is, the great proprietor of the vineyard and its cultivator. Jesus gives us the image. He is the vine. His father is the vine dresser, the one who does the pruning. And we, we hear Jesus mention two different kinds of pruning. Uh, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. I don't think the disciples at this point recognize that they had just witnessed this kind of pruning. When Jesus dismissed Judas, the traitor, He was a branch that was never truly connected to the vine. He only appeared to be connected to the true vine. And the father cut him off. But then there is the gracious pruning of the heavenly father in our lives. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Again, we thought already about what this looks like. He, he cuts away sin in our life. He cuts away maybe things that are not sinful, but they're detrimental to our spiritual growth. He prunes us as we read the Word of God. He prunes us as we gather here on the Lord's Day and we hear the Word preached as we observe the sacraments. He prunes us through our fellowship with others. He prunes us through hard providences. He even prunes us through our falls into sin. That's what he did for Peter. Peter fell into sin. He denied his master and yet the Lord used that to prune him. 
so that he could bear much fruit. Again, we need to get the image here because I think very often we, we look at the hard providences that are brought into our lives and we think, Lord, why? Like, wh- why? Like, what are you doing? The pruning, pruning sometimes can be very aggressive. And my mom is a master gardener. And she was visiting us some time ago, and she came out with pruning shears in our front yard, and she said, I'm going to prune this, this bush. I'm like, okay. And I'm talking to my neighbor, and I look over, and this thing looks completely destroyed when she gets done with it. And I'm kind of thinking, like, what, what did you just do to that? And yet in the spring, that bush was fuller and more colorful than I'd ever seen it. And we need to remember that imagery because there are things in our lives that the Lord brings to us that we look at and say, Lord, what are you doing? Lord, you just destroyed me. Lord, you just, you wrecked me. And as hard as it is, This calls us to a new perspective on that. To see that the Lord is graciously pruning us. That we might bear more fruit. And we need to think differently about our trials than the world does. There are things I think that the world would look at in our lives and say, Oh, what a waste. What a shame. But the Father is pruning us because He loves us, because He wants us to bear fruit. And this is not to say it's not tremendously painful at times. But I would encourage you to consider this when you experience that deep pain of the Father's pruning knife. Remember that your Savior submitted himself to his father's pruning knife. And he was pruned, he was cut, he was wounded in a way that none of us ever will be. He was cut off out of the land of the living for our sake. And because of that, we see the fruit of the gospel go forth to the ends of the earth. We need to submit ourselves to the Father's gracious pruning shears. But secondly, the key to abiding in Christ is also remaining intimately connected to the church. Remember, the vine had a corporate aspect to it. It was a sign of Israel. It was a sign of the church. And one writer I was reading this week laments the fact that Modern commentators look at this passage and they see it only individualistically. When in fact the image of the vine is corporate in nature, as well as the fact that all of the yous in this passage are plural. If the church is where our Lord promises His special presence to us, 
if this is where in the most powerful way we hear his word and have his face shine upon us, then we need to be intimately connected to the church. We need to be intimately connected to our brothers and our sisters. The, the image of the vine and the branches is not one cluster of fruit growing on its own, but a bunch of clusters growing together side by side, being nourished together, being pruned together, being cultivated together. And it is clear from what Jesus says that abiding in his word is a key to abiding in him. Verse 3, you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words in you. Now this certainly reminds us of our need to read our Bibles, to meditate on it. But it also reminds us of the importance of our corporate gatherings here. Where the word is proclaimed and his spirit comes in a powerful way to apply it to our hearts. But then thirdly, as we remain in Christ, as we seek to bear fruit, understand that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, your triune God, loves you and is on your side in your fight of faith. They love you. Do you believe that today? In your struggle against sin, in your struggle to obey Him, the triune God loves you. The triune God wants you to succeed. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Friends, your Savior wants you to succeed. Your Savior is eager to forgive you when you fail. He wants you to have joy in the Christian life. Do you believe that? That your joy may be full. I think all of us have had a coach or a teacher, and, and we become very aware they do not want me to succeed. They're just waiting to bring the hammer down on me. They're waiting me to make one little mistake. And they're going to drop the hammer on me. Is that how you see Jesus today? Is that how you see your heavenly father today? I would urge you to heed Jesus' words here. He is a God who wants us to succeed. He is not up in heaven ready to bring the hammer down on us for every little mistake that we make. I think I've pointed this out to you before that one of, one of the reasons we see Jesus go after the Pharisees with fierce anger and confrontation. Why is that? 
They were making his heavenly father out to be unloving. They had led the people to believe that the father in heaven was up there ready to bring down the hammer on them. Here, Jesus beautifully assures us that he loves us. He wants us to abide in his love. He wants us to experience his love and he wants us to have joy in him. Isn't it amazing what Jesus says? These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. Kind of hard to believe that Jesus has joy in us. But he does, for we are his. We can go to him for forgiveness. We can know cleansing and restoration. And we can pursue our fight of faith knowing that he is with us. Thirdly and finally, Jesus then goes on to talk about the blessing of friendship with Jesus. If the essence of the Christian life is union with the Savior, then it follows that Jesus would tell his disciples that all Christians, no matter how insignificant they are in this world, no matter how different they might be from one another, he says, you are my friends. And again, he is teaching us just how intimate our relationship with him is. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Here again is that idea. We are Jesus' friends, and he's saying, look, everything that I have a right to, you have a right to. Everything the Father said to me, I have said to you. I've held nothing back from you because you are my friends. Now, Jesus, along with this command, he reminds us that he has entrusted himself to us. He has opened himself to us. And you'll notice that one of the things he underlines here is that his friends should love his other friends. If Jesus has first loved us and entrusted himself to us, then it follows that his friends will love him and want to be with him, but also love Jesus' other friends. And again, back to that idea of remaining intimately connected to the church, the most clear expression of this happens here. Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Verse 17, these things I command you so that you will love one another. We can't really fulfill that commandment if we are not engaged in the life 
of the church. We read from Hebrews 10 that command to stir up one another. And it, what's interesting in the New Testament, there are something like 58 one another commandments. Love one another. Serve one another. Stir up one another. And in almost every case, those are addressed to the whole church. And if we think about what is signified and sealed in the Lord's Supper... It's not only a sign and seal of our union with Jesus, but also of our union with one another. And Jesus points out that this should be a powerful witness to the world. He says the world should know us by our love. Now, how does this work? Because I think we, we underestimate how powerful of a witness this can be. We look around at, at the church, and we can say that Christ brings people together as friends who would otherwise never be friends. I mean, we look at the world's view of friendship. You, you are with people that are like you, that have the same interest in you, that, that have the same backgrounds as you. That's the world's version of friendship. But Jesus brings together people from all kinds of different backgrounds, with all kinds of different gifts, and he brings us together, and we share that common bond of Jesus, and it should be a powerful witness. And the world can look at us and say, there's something different about that kind of friendship. Friends, this also reminds us of our our great need to love one another despite all of our faults, all of our failures, all of our quirks. Jesus doesn't give any qualifiers. Love one another except those who have quirks or, or those who offended you. We are to love one another. And congregation, I would exhort you not to let a critical spirit to take root in your hearts. We're living in an age of criticism. It's all around us and it influences us. And we will very often find ourselves tempted to focus on the weaknesses, even the sins of our brothers and sisters. Here we are reminded, we are tempted to criticize people because they're not perfect or because they're not like us or because they don't do things the way we do. We need to remember Jesus' words and his command to love one another as he has loved us. And finally, we see here what, what ultimately brings us together and unites us and gives us our, our one identity is the fact that Jesus' friends are those for whom Jesus died. Verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no man than this, 
that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, you may know that verse. I, I wonder how you have, how you have read that. As I know how I used to read it. I used to make that about me. I, I need to be willing to lay down my life. And that's certainly true, but that's not the primary meaning. It's not primarily about us. This is about Jesus. We need to read it with verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. What's that love look like? Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is saying, I am the perfect friend. I am the true friend. He wants you to get a sense of how deep his love is for you. There's no greater love than this. A love that came to its full expression in the dark hour of Calvary. Where he laid down his life for his friends. And we need to remember Jesus was saying this to disciples who had failed to listen to him. Disciples who were about to fail him and be the worst kind of friends. One would deny him, the rest would forsake him. And when Peter denied him, what what happened? What was the interchange in that denial? Are you one of them? Are you his disciple? Are you his friend? I do not know the man. And friends, we have all failed Jesus in the same way. We have failed to be a faithful friend. But thank God that Jesus is the true friend who will never fail us, who will never leave us. Proverbs 18.24 says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is that friend that sticks closer than a brother. The world finds comfort in a multitude of so-called friends. But brothers and sisters, there is one friend you must have. There is one vine in which, in which you must abide. There is one Savior that you must be united to. The Lord Jesus Christ, the true vine. Remain in Him. Live in him, abide in him, that you might bear much fruit. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word, for it is truth. We pray that you would apply these words to our heart. We pray that we would live in light of the glorious privilege we have of being one with you through your Son. Help us, Lord, to abide in you. Help us to submit 
to your gracious pruning. Lord, help us, we pray, to bear fruit, and not for our sake, not for our glory, but for your glory. Lord, fill us with your spirit and enable us to love one another as you have loved us. We thank you. We thank you for your son, the true vine, the one who was cut off out of the land of the living for our sake. We acknowledge that we stand here today as living fruit from that gracious pruning. We thank you for him and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.